Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 3, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars, you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand that you, what you were to say, but say whatever is given you, in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against his parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Alistair Begg once wrote, The only true conqueror who shall be crowned in the end is he who continues until war's trumpet is blown no more. Christian, wear your shield close to your armor and cry earnestly to God, and by his spirit you may endure to the end. The truth is, it is very easy to praise the Lord when the sun is shining outside. It is easy to worship God when you are not in fear. It is easy to talk about being a Christian when things are good. It is, it is easy to stand up for your faith when there is no external threat against you. It is easy to follow Christ when the costs are very low. But what about when things get hard? What about when things are more difficult when, when it seems like everything and everyone is standing against you? What about those times when those who are closest to you turn on you and turn against you? What about then? What about when the culture labels you as hateful and bigoted and they begin to target you openly? What about when the world itself begins to hate you because of Christ and what you say that you believe? What about then? Suddenly following Jesus isn't so easy. But hear me. It is in those moments, brothers and sisters, that we will find out who really follows Christ 
And who just says that they do? And this is where we are, by the way, in the Gospel of Mark. Because Jesus is going to talk about following him when things get really, really hard. You look at those verses, you look at the words that he's saying in there, and what's about to happen, you understand, he is saying, it's going to be really, really hard to follow me. We're going to look at what it means to follow Christ when the world hates you. Right? When the world comes against you. In this text, we're going to look at what it means to follow Christ in the dark. As you know, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for quite some time in a series titled Following Jesus. And the point of this series has been essentially threefold. Number one, if you are not in Christ, we want for you to clearly hear the gospel so that you can respond to that gospel, put your faith in Christ and be saved. We want everyone, we want everyone, we want everyone to repent and believe the gospel and be saved. That is our heart's cry. Secondly, if you are in Christ, we want you to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is and what that means for your life. We want for you to mature in your faith. Christ doesn't call us to simply be babes forever. He, are, he expects us to grow up. And then number three, we want to help you to take action based on what you've learned about who Christ is and what he has done and what he's calling you to do. We want to help you to follow Jesus as one of his disciples, right? which means to go wherever he leads you and to do the things that he calls you to do. Why? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to have a relationship with him. You were not simply saved so that you can put a Christian bumper sticker on your car and add a label to your life, right? And sit there like a bump on a log singing, I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you? You were saved by the grace of God to grow and become more and more like him. You were saved to become part of God's life-saving mission to the world. You were saved to actively, daily follow Jesus. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, what did he say? Pick up your cross and follow me. And that's what we're talking. That's why we're in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a fast-moving, action-packed narrative that has been great for teaching what it means to follow Christ. And over the last couple of years, because it's almost been two years, by the way, over the last couple of years and in the last 12 chapters, we've learned a lot about what it means to be a disciple in Christ. In fact, Wilson uh, actually is, had began last week teaching through the Gospel of Mark. He began at part one, you know, using what, what he's learned through this series, and, and he's listening to every part of it so far, right? He sees the value in the discipleship, and he's teaching through that. Mark is a perfect gospel for teaching discipleship because it gives a clear picture of what it means to follow Christ. And so, and so far, we've explored a lot of what it means to follow Christ. But, when the, but, but really, when the sun's shining... We've seen what it looks like to follow Christ when things are okay and not really too contentious. Right? But right now we're going to actually see what it's like to follow him when it's hard. What it means to follow Christ when the whole world seems to be against you. In fact, in the next few weeks, as we explore chapter 13, we're going we're gonna to treat this kind of like a little mini-series within the overall series that we have. Right? And, and, and we've titled this mini-series, Following Jesus in the Dark. All right, so when you see this, understand we're still in the same book and the same gospel, but I want you to know this has an intense focus on this issue of following Jesus when things are really, really hard. Now, with that being said, 
If you were not here last week, all right, and if you have not had a chance to listen to the message, then you need to commit right now to going back to the YouTube page or the Facebook page or even to SoundCloud and listen to that message. And the reason for that is we spent a lot of time laying the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about in chapter 13. In fact, last week, I apologize, last week has been, it was the longest message I ever preached in my entire life. Okay? Just the way that it is. Right. But that being said, there was a lot foundationally that we covered. There was, there was too much to talk about. Seriously. There was so much foundation we talked about that, that really lays the foundation for this chapter going forward. And we covered so much ground. Again, I'm not going to review everything we talked about because there's not enough time. All right. I just expect for you to go back and listen to that. But I will just give you a couple of key points I think we need to keep in mind moving forward. Number one. Mark 13, as we talked about, is the, the, the most difficult passage of Scripture in Mark to interpret. There is no consensus among scholars on its interpretation. If somebody says there is, they're wrong, because there's not. Right? There's a lot of diverging opinions about what the text means, and it really depends a lot about you know, what you bring to the text that will determine a lot of that stuff. So we spend a lot of, talk about, a lot of time talking about why you can listen to that. Number two, our approach to this text that we've adopted is that we're going to examine this through two important facets. There's two things we need to keep in mind as we look at this text. The first approach is that we view the prophecies that Jesus gives in chapter 13. We believe that those prophecies, and they're clearly prophecies, that those that he predicted were fulfilled with the fall of Jerusalem. They were literally fulfilled in the first century, but these prophecies also are allusions and symbols to future events of when Christ will return. In other words, we see in Jesus' words an immediate fulfillment in history, but then also a future fulfillment when he comes to reign and rule. Okay? That's how we're viewing the text. The second approach that we have to this text Right, is to do what Mark and Christ intended for us to do, and that is to make to take this practical instruction in how we are to live as Christians in a hostile world, how we're to live our faith out in a hostile world. That's really Christ's intention. That's really Mark's intention. It's not to answer all of our questions about when the end's coming. It is to tell us when things get hard, this is how you're supposed to live. In fact, Trumper Longman rightly explains, he says, this discourse remains, I mean, this, the, the, the purpose of this discourse is not to satisfy curiosity about, future, about the future, but to give practical ethical teachings. He is preparing his disciples and beyond the church to live and witness in a hostile world. It is, it is not about what end times perspective is right. It's about learning to follow Jesus when things get harder than you can possibly imagine. That's what it's about. That is the framework by which we're going we're gonna to examine this text and we're going to walk through. So with that being said, in a much shorter introduction, let's go ahead and begin to look at the text. Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> but I want to begin at verse 10. And the reason I want to begin at verse 10 is because verse 10 is the central goal of not just this passage, and not just this chapter, but the entire book of Mark. Verse 10 is actually the central goal of the entire Bible. In fact, look at, look at what it says. Verse 10 reads, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
Brothers and sisters, that is the mission of Christ's church. That right there, encapsulated in one verse. That's the mission. The gospel is to be proclaimed to all the nations. That is the goal. That is the mission. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And how does he save sinners? Through the gospel. The truth about who God is and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ that we could not do for ourselves. That is the central message of the entire canon of all of Scripture. That is the message that that all of Scripture points toward. From, From the beginning to the end, it is about this central focus, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the worldwide spreading of the gospel. That is the goal. Remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, what's the first thing that Jesus said when he came and started his ministry? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What did Jesus say after his resurrection, right before he left the earth? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Mission. And then consummation. Mission, then consummation. The goal of Christ's ministry, the goal of the church itself, the goal of every Christian is exactly the same. It is the proclamation of the gospel around the world. And actually, the Greek here literally, what it says, the world, it actually means people groups. It means, it, it means actual individual tribes. So the goal of the gospel is that we are not just to reach every country, but we're to reach every people group everywhere. That is the goal of Christ's mission on the earth. Which means this verse then is actually the center of everything else that Jesus is going to talk about in this chapter. Right? Everything is centered on the gospel. Everything has its context rooted in the gospel and that gospel being proclaimed everywhere. In fact, you cannot understand what this text is saying really truly unless you understand the centrality of the gospel and the importance of our mission to spread the gospel. By the way, this is the part that the American church gets wrong. We've been told that the, that, that, that the central focus is to go out in the world and be nice to people and love people and be so good that maybe they will ask us about Jesus Christ. The central goal of the church is not those things. We are to do those things for sure, but the central goal is always, always, always the gospel, which then leads us to deal then with the issue of the word first in this verse here. Because Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, which then creates a little bit of a controversy because people... You know, most people understand this to mean that Jesus, what he's predicting, can't take place until the gospel is proclaimed to all the nations. That 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 must happen first before everything else. In fact, Matthew even complicates the matter a little bit and says in his parallel gospel, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, without getting too far into the weeds of this text here, what we need to realize, again, is that there are two events that we must keep in view here, what Jesus is talking about. 
There is the destruction of Jerusalem. And then there is the coming of Christ in the future. His, his, his parousia, as they, as they call it. The, the end when he comes. Right? And, as, and as we said, we, we see in this text how Christ's word is fulfilled initially in history in 70 AD. But his, his word is finally fulfilled in the future. And what we need to realize is that this expression that Jesus uses here, all the nations, we have to be very careful not to bring 21st century understanding to the text, right? Because this phrase can be understood in two ways. It can be understood in all the nations or, or all the people groups on the entire globe that we understand, which is the way we understand it today. Or it also can mean the known world in the first century, which was probably the understanding at the time. When Mark penned these words of Jesus, he was probably in his own mind thinking in terms of the known world, which was the Roman Empire, because that was the common understanding. That was what they understood at the time. And the New Testament bears witness to that. For example, Romans chapter 16. If you have a Bible, take, just turn with me to Romans chapter 16. I just want to illustrate this point so you know where I'm going. Romans chapter 16 beginning in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Paul has just said that the gospel has been revealed to all the nations at that time. Now was he saying that the, that the gospel had been revealed all around the globe? Or was he talking about the known world? Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. This is just to add emphasis. Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. So what Paul is saying is that the gospel has gone forth through the whole world and is bearing fruit all over the world. Does he mean the, around the globe or is he talking about the known world? Well, obviously he's talking about the known world in the Roman Empire. Right? And so when Jesus said that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come, we need to understand that he, what he's saying is the temple is not going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is not going to be destroyed. Right? And it will not fall until the gospel is proclaimed throughout the known world. Which, by the way, if you read the New Testament, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Right? But we also know, applying this forward, that he will not return until the world, to judge the world until the gospel is proclaimed around the globe. That's what our hope is. That's why we work so hard for missions. This is consistent with how we approach the text, which means... The goal for the disciples was to spread the gospel far and wide throughout the known world. 
right? And again, which was accomplished according to the New Testament. And the goal for us then is the exact same goal, but in the broadest possible sense. We are to labor and proclaim the gospel to all people around the globe. That is our, that is our mission. That is our goal. That, is, that was their goal and mission. It is our goal and mission. Theirs was fulfilled in that time. Ours is yet to be fulfilled. And unless we understand the centrality of this goal, then the rest of chapter 13 is going to become something of a mess for us, and we're really going to lose a sense of what Jesus is driving at as it relates to them and as it relates to us. You see, the goal has been and always will be and will continue to be the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed everywhere. Which then, by the way, set the marker for them in history, for them to be able to look forward to as they anticipated the destruction of Jerusalem. And then it also sets a marker for us and, and the coming of Christ. Now, hear me. I believe Christ can return anytime he wants to. Right? And I don't know exactly what he has in mind when he says all people. All I do know is that the Bible says that it must, we must proclaim it to all people, which means that should be the central focus of our lives, is that we proclaim it to all people. That's why we work towards worldwide proclamation of the gospel. That's why we support so many missionaries. This little church supports all the missionaries it does because we understand the urgency here. That's why we urge everyone that we know to get involved in the Great Commission and get involved in evangelism and disciple-making. We understand the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Now, with that goal in mind, right, and, and with that goal in mind about, it, about being the spreading of the gospel, then let's take some time and look at the text, beginning in verse 3. It says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of when all these things are about to be accomplished? And again, if we talked about last week, I want you to notice the word and. Again, this is a continuation of a very long day in the middle of a very long week. It's about to come to its termination with the death of, and burial, and then resurrection of Christ, right? This is the context of what's, what's happening here. Jesus, and nobody from nowhere, comes out of obscurity and begins proclaiming the gospel, and then he calls four men, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. By the way, don't you notice the interesting bookend, how that works itself out? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, right? And then he begins ministering in Galilee, preaching and performing all manner of miracles, and then in a span of about three years becomes the most famous person in all of Judea. And everybody wants to be near him. Everybody wants to, to be touched by him. And most people are wondering, is this the Messiah that we have been waiting for? Right? Is he the one? Is he the king that we've been told about all of our lives? And so then at the height of his popularity, Jesus, after three years of ministry rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in very clear, specific fulfillment of prophecy, essentially saying, yes, that he is the Messiah, and the city's electric with his coming. You cannot overstate the importance of this event. But then when Jesus came into the city proclaiming by his actions that he is the Messiah, he didn't actually come to lead a revolt against Rome, as they had expected for him to do. Instead, he came pronouncing judgment not what they expected at all. 
Judgment against the temple, judgment against the religious leaders, judgment against Israel itself. And the reason he was judging them is because of their unfaithfulness and their unfruitfulness because he failed to lead the world in worship of God. It's always been about the world worshiping God, not just one small group of people. You see, the goal has always been the same, and it hasn't changed. Now, after pronouncing judgment, Jesus engages the religious leaders in several heated discussions where he, he put them in their place, demonstrating his wisdom and authority, and these men then wanted to kill him. And then soon after this, it says that Jesus left the temple, which, by the way, was the last time he would leave the temple. And, he, and as we talked about last week, he came to rest on the Mount of Olives. This, again, is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11, where the glory of God leaves the temple of Israel permanently. It's an act of judgment against Israel. Jesus, the visual glory of the living God, God incarnate, left the temple in an act of judgment against the nation. And that is what you have to understand is the context of everything else Jesus is saying here in chapter 13. The judgment of Israel is coming against the nation of Israel for her covenant unfaithfulness and her unfruitfulness, right? Her unfruitfulness to be a light for the nations. And the thing that we have to see here then is that judgment that will be poured out in the future, which is what he's going to talk about. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. He says it's going to be completely destroyed, which then must have been a shock in that moment for the disciples. You know, I sometimes think about being a disciple at that time. Everyone says, I wish I was here with Jesus was. Sometimes I'd be scared to death of that because it's like they're always walking around in a state of, I have no idea what's happening, right? They think they know, they know what's going on, and then Jesus says something completely different than what they expect. They expected that he was the king, that there was going to be a physical kingdom, right? And remember, they struggled. Every time he talked about his death and resurrection, they were like struggling with that. It didn't fit their understanding of who he was. <clears throat> they expected him to be an earthly king. How much more then, how much more confusion would this have caused them, this idea that God's temple, this glorious, beautiful edifice dedicated to God would be destroyed, much less the city of Jerusalem. So naturally they're like, okay, if that's going to happen, then when? They're going to be curious about it. When is it going to be accomplished? Peter, James, and John asked him actually privately, tell us when these things uh, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of these things are about to be accomplished. So in essence, they're asking two questions. When is this going to happen and what's going to be the sign to let us know that it's about to happen? When will it be and how are we going to know? Right? That's really the question. In fact, most of us would actually probably ask the same kinds of questions. Right? When something unexpected is going to happen, somebody says, hey, this is about to happen. You say, please, give me a heads up when it's about to happen. Don't leave me in the dark. I'd like to know when, and, and how am I going to know? Like, you're going to call me, you're going to text me, what's going to happen here? Right? They want to know when and how. That's the essence of what they're asking. And Jesus just predicted this cataclysmic event, and they're like, oh boy, okay, that's scary. So Jesus, tell us then when, and, and, and so we can be prepared for this. To which Jesus then, in his classic style, doesn't just give them a short, simple answer. Right? He actually gives them an extended answer. And what we need to realize is this answer actually spans verses 5 all the way to verse 23. The whole section 
of text from 5 to 23 is the answer to their question of what will of when this will happen and how they're going to know it's going to happen. This section is basically one long extended answer to that question. But what I want you to understand is that what we miss because we kind of scrunch it all together and we want to read it all as one thing is that Jesus is actually breaking his answer into two parts. He's breaking his answer into two parts. He will tell them of what the signs will be of the end to come or when when Jerusalem will be destroyed. But he's also going to tell them about the signs that people will mistake for the things to come. This is really, really important for us to see. Jesus is going to tell them what the signs are and what the signs are not. This is the point that we get lost in because we want to squish it all together. This is why Bible study is so important that you have to look at the text and pull it apart. Understand, if we we actually get our heads wrapped around this idea, this is going to clear up a lot of mystery for many of us. And this will help you to understand Jesus' instructions to his disciples at the time and ultimately to us as a church today in how we are to live in difficult and dark times. So the answer to the question is, is in two parts. Verses 14 to 25, Jesus will say, this is the sign of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. This is going to be the sign. He's going to give a clear indication, visible signs of what they need to be looking for. Right? Positive proof. It's about to happen. Right? In fact, let me read for you really what he says there, just, the, just the, the very first part. He says, But when you see, he's talking to them, when you see the, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader, first century reader, understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is a clear warning. Okay, when you see that happen, now it's time to go. Right? That's what he's, he's saying there. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of interpretation to be done in the rest of that text, and I'm hoping to jump into that in a couple of weeks. But suffice it to say, right, this section is the positive answer that they're looking for. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. This is the point that you're, you're looking for. But then what about verses 5 through 13 that precede that? What are they for? They aren't the sign. Aren't they the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem is about to take place? Aren't they the signs of the coming of the end of the age? I mean, we, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, right? No. No. These are not the signs of the end. Jesus, right? We see Jesus in this section. He says, right? That this is not, he tells us, these are events, as troubling as they might be, are not the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem. And by extension, they're not the signs of the end of the age. They're not. In fact, Jesus makes it really, really clear that they're not. Notice what he says. The end is not yet. When you see these things, the end is not yet. Jesus is saying that they're not the signs of the end. Instead, these are troubling events that people will look to and mistake as signs of the end. People are going to look at these difficult, horrific kinds of events and think the end must be near. Jesus tells them, people, well, the problem is that they mistakenly look at these signs and expect the end based on what they're seeing in their current circumstances. Because in the process of misreading the events, right, they lose sight of something very important. And you know what that is? And the process of getting all wound up and getting in the middle of, is this the end? Is this the end? Is they lose sight of what? The gospel. They lose sight of the goal. 
Jesus in this section is going to warn the disciples and us that there are two things that will happen in the world that people will mistake for the coming destruction of Jerusalem or the coming of Christ, and it will actually distract them from the mission of Christ. There are two things that people will misinterpret that will cause them to focus on the end of times rather than the central mission that Christ is calling all of us to, which is the spreading the gospel around the world. And those are, number one, false teachers who leverage current events in history and, and of our day who lead people astray. That's number one. Number two will be persecution of Christians. The persecution of Christians throughout history has oftentimes been mistaken as a sign of the end. Every time Christian persecution has risen throughout history, Christians at that time go, we must be living in the end. Right? But there's been great persecution against Christ Christians throughout history. Jesus warns against what false teachers who lead people astray during difficult times, right? and he warns against people reading too much into Christian persecution. Now, these two sections are the distractions that Jesus is going to point us to. And suffice it to say, these are the two things that we're going to focus on the next couple of weeks. So let me just, let me, let me bottom line this for you, summarize this for you, okay? Because there's a lot of pieces here. I mean, kind of gather them all up and hopefully it makes sense. Jesus is saying the temple is going to be destroyed. The followers say, when and how? And Jesus tells them positively, at this point, when you see this happen, that's when it's going to happen. But he's also going to say, but hey, when these other things happen, that's not yet the end. That's not yet the time. The time has not yet come. Right? And what we're going to look at then in the next two weeks is what Jesus is saying are the distractions that lead people to focus on is at the end rather than the mission of Christ that is at hand. Does that make sense? Does that track? Okay. So that being said, Right, today we're going to focus on verses 5 through 8. Because even though we read all the way to 14, as you can tell, we're not going to have time to get it all, and I don't want this to be the second longest or the longest message I've ever preached in my life. Okay, you're welcome. And so what I want you to realize here is Jesus then is basically beginning to answer their question. And he begins in verse 5 and says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Now, something that you need to realize is, is that sometimes when we translate Greek words into English, there's oftentimes a lot that can get missed. And the truth is we miss something in this text if that's just how you read it. Right? Because the Greek word here that gets translated as, as see that, that carries with it a much bigger idea than just, just checking on something or, or seeing about something. In fact, Jesus uses this same word three times in this text from verses 5 to 23. Right? He uses this exact same word. Now, it's not apparent in English, but if you were to read the Greek, you would see it. Right? He uses the Greek word blepo three times. The first time he uses it here in verse 5 where he says, see that no one leads you astray. The second time he uses it in verse 9 where he says, be, uh, be on your guard, is how he, he puts it, for they will deliver you over to councils. And then the third time he uses it is in verse 23. He says, again, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus uses this word three times in this small section, which then tells us two important things. First of all, 
It's not accidental that Jesus is beginning the section with the word blepo, and he ends the section with the word blepo. We've seen this particular phenomenon throughout Mark. It's a literary device that's intended to act as bookends of a section. It unifies the text between them. And as we've said, this section is unified because this right here between verses 5 and 23 is the answer to the question that they're asking about the cataclysm that is to come. How are we going to know? Verses 5 through 23 is the overall answer to that. And it's bookended by this word, be watchful, be aware be careful okay and notice i want you to see there's a huge difference when you see the word in english see to it and be on guard if i were to use those expressions with you you would think i'd have two different messages for you right which means this word actually has more sense of urgency in what jesus is saying here than we might actually recognize when we read the english phrase because the word blepo means to take heed or to behold or be aware. Another way to put this would be to say, right, beware that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard that no one leads you astray. Can you see the sense of urgency what he's saying here? You need to have your wits about you. You need to keep your eyes open is what Jesus is saying. In fact, the word blepo is present tense, active, imperative. These are things I'm learning for Dr. David Larson, by the way. Present tense, active imperative. It means that this is a continual, ongoing action, right? In other words, what you need to do is be constantly being aware. You need to be constantly, actively aware to make sure that there aren't people that are leading you astray. This is like a call to have your eyes continually open. You see, what you might not realize this is this is a very serious warning from Jesus, this is an important warning for them. It's also important for, for us as well. Well, why is it so important? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. People are going to fall away. It's going to happen. If they don't pay attention, people are going to fall away. And he says, right, that, that they're going to say, I am he. Now, when we, we survey the other Gospels, what we figure out really, really quickly what he's talking about is they're going to basically claim to be the Messiah. They're going to claim to be God's anointed one, the Christ, right? Claiming to be, you know, the one that everybody's been waiting on. And not only is he saying that these false messiahs will lead people astray, right? He didn't, I want you to see what he's saying. He's not just saying that some people got led astray. He's saying not just a few people got led astray, but many people got led astray or going to get led astray this is where we need to pay attention to what's being said here many people will be led astray i think instead of trying to figure out whether the european union is the beast of revelation we need to be watchful and aware of false teachers and false messiahs who who prey on people and lead them astray because it says a lot of people will be led astray. But Pastor Sherman, come on. He's talking about false messiahs. Right? Messiah is not a word we even use anymore. I mean, I really don't think we're going to have a problem with false messiahs leading people astray. I mean, Christians don't think another messiah is coming. Sure about that. Because what does messiah actually mean? It means God's anointed one. It means one that's specially set apart. You might not use the, the title messiah, but there's a lot of other ways to say that. Have we in America ever come across anyone claiming 
to be God's anointed one. Perhaps. How about Joseph Smith and Brigham Young? I mean, they didn't actually claim the title Messiah, but you could say they saw themselves as messianic figures, that they saw themselves as anointed on par with Christ. How about Charles Taze Russell and, and Judge Rutherford and the Jehovah's Witnesses? They certainly saw themselves in a light that was up, above and beyond everyone else. Or Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists. Or how about L. Ron Hubbard? You're talking about somebody with a Messiah complex. Or how about... Jim Jones, the founder of the People's Temple in Jonestown. Who, who remembers that story? Yeah. That's why we have expressions like, don't drink the Kool-Aid. How about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians? They saw him as the Messiah. Keith Rainier and the sex cult Nexium. Or how about Ben Carter, who founded the Black Hebrew Israelites? By the way, it's a growing movement within the world around us. One that you need to become aware of. It's actually quite frightening how they view things. Or how about Jose Luis de Jesus? He was a pastor in Miami several years back who claimed to be Christ incarnate, that he believed that he was the second coming of Christ. And as crazy as you might think it is, that dude had 2 million people following him in 30 countries. The history of our country, the history of the world is riddled with the influence of false messiahs rising up, claiming divine origin, leading people astray. And they've done so by the millions, if not billions. And they don't just lead people away who are just easy pickings all the time. They don't lead people away who don't have you know, a faith background. In fact, I don't know, did you know what, what denomination has the highest conversion rate into Mormonism. Mrs. Miller's right is Baptist, particularly independent fundamentalist Baptists, because that whole militant kind of aspect really meshes really well. They speak almost a similar language, and it seems like a natural transition. Right? These aren't just people who have no Christian education. So this this then is a serious warning, right? This isn't just for them, this is for today. Jesus is saying we need to keep our eyes open and be mindful of false teachers and false messiahs, especially, and here's the other part of this that we're not seeing, especially during times when things get hard. Because it is when, when, when things get hard and the world gets crazy that people tend to fall for the false messiahs and cults. In fact, I just listened to a, a program called Cultish, and they chronicle all kinds of new cults that are happening. And, and, and he said, historically speaking, tribulations and difficult times typically spa, uh, spawn spikes in people flocking to cults. Why? Well, Jesus actually explains this. He says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Now, this is important for us to see. Jesus is not warning, again, against uh, of the end. He's not warning people, hey, you need to keep your eyes open for the end. And in fact, he says, this must take place, but the end is not yet. It's, it's not here. Right? And then he says, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pangs. Beginning of birth pains. To which a lot of people say, well, see, pastor, you're wrong. Because that means it's going to happen soon. Let me, let me, let me just tell you something. All right? 
many women who become pregnant, and you have to be a woman to be pregnant, okay? They will experience Braxton, Braxton Hicks labor pains as early as 14 weeks. I've had a bunch of kids, and I'm kind of familiar with that. They've had, they experience birth pains as early as 14 weeks. It's four months along. Now, if you ask any woman who's pregnant, 16 weeks is not even close to the end. Right? right? The end, at that point, is still a long ways off. Right? But it's the beginning of birth pains. Jesus is saying that that's what's happening. When you see these things that you get worried about and twisted up about, wars and strife, right? These are scary things that happen in the world. Right? The end's not yet, though. And historically speaking, people of all cultures, the reason why Jesus warns against this and saying that the end is not yet, I want you to hear me. The reason why he's saying that the end is not yet is because people historically have always looked at these kind of events as eschatological or end times events. People have always been looking at their difficult circumstances from basically the beginning to all the way to 2020, looking at at everything around them and interpreting the difficulty that they're facing as we must be now standing in the end. Jesus says, when you see these things, don't be alarmed. Don't be worried. Don't be freaked out. Now, why should... Why not be alarmed? Why does he say that? I mean, he didn't say that just accidentally. There's a, there, there is an admonition here. There is an exhortation here. He's telling them specifically this. It's not just, hey, don't worry about it. I mean, he's telling them to, to be aware and not be alarmed. Well, I believe he says this for three reasons. Number one, as we mentioned, the end's not yet. So don't freak out, right? It's not here yet. It's the beginning of birth pains. Number two, this kind of event when things like this happen, tend to freak people out. In, in fact, the word that Jesus used here, alarmed, in the Greek is, is uh, thrael. And what that means literally is to be frightened or to cry out loud is what it means. And, and this word is present tense imp, uh, passive imperative, which means it's something that happens to you. you outside forces cause this to come out of you. And what he's saying is don't let the circumstances of your life make you frightened or fearful. By the way, in the 1930s, when two-mile-high, 100-mile-wide walls of dust were bearing down across the, the plains of America, there were people going, this the end. Right? Jesus is coming back tomorrow because you know, we have a tendency, people have always had a tendency to look at our circumstances and go, you know, and freak out thinking it has to be over. In fact, if I can just confess really, really quick, I'll make it fast. It happened to me, okay? So I, I wasn't a Christian. I thought I was. I started studying Christianity. I got hung up on end times prophecy stuff, and I just read about hailstones, massive hailstones follow, falling, right? And I'm like worried. The end times are coming any moment. I mean, like I'm living in a state of panic continually, and I'm driving to, from Bakersfield to Arvin through the back rows. Then the rain starts. And then clouds of, like I've never seen before start dropping hailstones bigger than I've ever seen before. And I'm like, the end is here. I mean, I'm thinking, here I am, you know. And I'm like actually panicking, going, I got my whole life ahead of me. And now the end's going to come. Come on, Lord. Right? Which it wasn't the end, obviously. We have a tendency to panic because of our circumstances. So he says, don't worry. The third reason why he says not to be fearful or concerned is the fact that false teachers and false prophets and false messiahs tend to use our current 
stressful circumstances and events in order to promote their teachings. And this is particularly relevant for us because this is a common tactic, right, that false teachers have been using since the early church. They would, they would say, look what's happening here. Look what's going on over there. Look at all that bloodshed. Look at what's, you know, the Bible must have said something about that, right? So follow me. The thing we need to understand is that there were Messiah figures before Christ came who leveraged the strife and political climate at the time to gain a following. If you remember, Judas of the Galilean, we talked about him, led a tax revolt right before the birth of Christ, which actually that tax was what prompted Christ to go to Bethlehem. Right? He led the tax revolt, right? and guess what happened to him? They took them, him and his followers and put millstones around their necks and dropped them in the Sea of Galilee. We read about you know, the, the expression where that comes from. And after Christ come, came, there were many other false messiahs that rose up. In fact, there were so many of them at differing times. There was just a continual, you know, uh, chaos and strife that led to a final rebellion to where Rome finally just got fed up, besieged the city, and, and destroyed everything. These men would use the current political climate and the news of war and famine and catastrophes and political strife to promote a point of view, especially during times of high stress where people had already been were prone to look at their circumstances and think, man, it can't get any worse than it is now. Which, by the way, is what many people in Judah believed at the time. Like, there are people that believe that the age was at hand. Trumper Longman says that, that the eschatological expectations at the end of the end times were really high in the first century at that point. Why? Because things were hard. The Roman Empire was, was tyrannical. There was war all around them. There was great political upheaval. And people were suffering all over the place. People were, were literally starving to death. And the Romans, by the way, were crucifying people as an example of their authoritarian, authoritarian rule. That's why they, it was such a terrifying way to die. Right? People instinctively think things can't get worse when they're suffering, so they tend to expect that the end will come soon. And, and then he says, at various times, individuals claiming to be God's agents of deliverance gained prominence. False messiahs would use people's panic and fear and misunderstandings to claim, you know, I mean, uh, under misunderstanding of the time, to basically take their eyes off of their central hope, which is faith in Christ or the gospel. You see, what Jesus is saying to his disciples was that the temple is going to be destroyed at some point in time. But before that happens, a lot of stuff's going to take place. A lot of scary stuff's going to happen. But there are things that are going to happen and continue to happen. Right? These events will make you wonder if the cataclysm is coming. Right? But it's not yet. The end is not here. Right? It'll make you wonder if the end is close, but it's, it won't be. These are not the signs at the end of times. These are normal, chaotic events that happen because we live in a world marred with sin. And that is the, the focus we need to remember. We need to remember the things that are happening the way they are is because people love their sin more than they love the lights. Right? Wars happen. Nations fight with each other. Kingdoms rage against one another. Famines and pestilence have occurred ever since the time of the fall. And so if these things happen, right, don't allow yourself, what Jesus is saying is become fearful. Don't look at these events in, in terror. Don't let darkness drive at your emotions because 
right? The end is not yet. And those emotions and those fears of these chaotic events can actually cause you to, to have your judgment clouded, right? And make you pray to those who would lead you astray. That's in essence the point of what he's making here. What Jesus is saying is when things are dark, when things get hard, when things become overwhelming, you need not to be fearful of what's going to happen in the world. Don't be fearful, but be watchful of the false teachers. Why? Because the goal isn't to correctly guess whose end times perspective is right. The goal is to spread the gospel all the way around the world. You see, in the light and in the dark, the goal is still the same. It's to spread the gospel to all the nations. When everybody loves you and when everybody hates you, the goal is still the same, that we are to make disciples of all the nations. When you have a lot of money or when you pour as dirt, the goal is still the same. That's what Jesus is telling them. You need to stay focused on the gospel. You need not to get distracted by the false teachers and these false signs. When the darkness rises and when things get tough, you need to focus on the mission. Spread the hope of the gospel around the world. That is what he's telling them, and that's what Jesus is telling us now. We're not to look at our current circumstances and wonder, is the world ending? Everybody's always going to ask that question. That's fine. Ask it. But let's not get focused on it. We're to look and see that the world is actually broken exactly for the reason why the Bible says sin entered the world and infected everything and did so thousands of years ago. And what we're seeing is the fruit of that. And the only hope that this world has, the only world that, that this hope has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, again, if there's only one thing you remember me ever saying as your pastor, if you forget, you know, 50 years from now, you go, man, he was a good pastor, but I don't remember what he said, but he did say this one thing, right? The only hope that the world has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope but Jesus himself. There is none. That's why it's the goal, by the way. We need to be mindful of false teachers and the Messiah in our midst during these difficult times because we are facing difficult times. I won't deny it. It is crazy what's happening in the streets around us. Right? But we need to be mindful of false teachers around us because they are around us. Don't believe me? Then do you know what the best-selling, one of the best-selling topics in Christian literature is today? Books on the end times. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of authors who have written hundreds and hundreds of books. And what they'll do is look at the world around us today and say, look, what happens over here? And look at the Bible verse over here and obscure prophecy. Oh, and you know what? And there's this obscure Jewish tradition that nobody ever heard about, right? And there's this weird Bible code thing that you can actually interpret the Bible this way. And, and, and we must be, because of that, getting close to the end times. Just look how bad things are. Things have never been worse than they have been right now. Never mind that there's less hunger today in the world than there ever has been. That there's more medical um, availability than there ever has been. That people live longer now than there ever, ever has been. Wars are claiming less lives than there ever has been. Things are worse than they ever have been. We need to be prepared for the end times. And guess how you do that? Buy my book, buy my DVDs, come to my prophecy conference. And they'll sell millions of copies. It just astounds me. I wrote a little book that's practical to help people, you know, follow Christ. I sold, you know, 
Several hundred copies, yeah. Praise the Lord for that, right? These men are getting rich, right? Taking current events and sensationalizing them in order to make people think that the end is right here. These, these, these are false teachers and false prophets writing about harbingers and Bible codes and blood moons. In fact, back in the day, a very prominent prophecy expert actually wrote a book about Y2K and how that's going to be the downfall of America. Who remembers the whole thing about Y2K, by the way, right? Okay. So I'm not just, you understand the context. Remember how panicked everyone was? <laughs> by the way, these men usually end up being wrong at some point, And guess what they do? They never say I was wrong. What, what, what do they do? They write another book. And they get people to buy them. These men, right? What they do is they look at signs and they get people to spend more and more money for their seminars and their books, right? And they claim to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they don't actually encourage people to do what Christ is calling us to do, which is to focus on the gospel. They don't encourage us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. By the way, that's the more realistic sign of Christ's coming. Is the gospel going to the ends of the earth, right? That's what he said. The truth is we live right now in a superstitious society focused inwardly. And we look at the darkness and we continue to see what's engulfing our nation. And we think that the end must be drawing near. Why? Because we live now. And people are becoming really, really fearful. It is astounding to me how much fear people live you know, in light of a virus that has a 99.99% survivability rate. In fact, I even had a woman who never comes to church. I've known her for years. But she and her parents would actually go to Bible prophecy, Bible studies. Right? And she claims to be a Christian. And then she would ask me continually, oh, every time I was here, do you think we're living in the end times? I'm like, man, there's a lot of other questions that are a lot more relevant than that one. But all right. She's like, I do. I think we're in the end times. And I am so scared. And she watches like all the news all the time, and she watches, right, and, 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 and she thinks about the end times coming, right? And she is so terrified, right? And she's reading all these books by all these different authors, and she's watching all these YouTube videos. Talk about something that'll make you go crazy, by the way, right? All these YouTube videos on prophecy. And she doesn't come to worship God. She's not interested in being a disciple of Christ. She's not even the slightest bit interested in sharing the gospel with anyone. She just wants to know the answer to this one burning question. Are we at the end of times? What is this obsession gaining her? Nothing. Except maybe a false sense of assurance that maybe she might belong to God. But she may in fact be one of those that Christ says, away from me, I never knew you. People see what's happening in the world around us and they get terrified. They see the riots in the streets and they see the looting and they see the needless violence and, and, and all the hate and they think America is done with and because America is done with and the world must be coming to an end, right? But look at me. Church, hear my voice on this. These are the kinds of things that have been happening ever since before Christ even came into the world. The peace that we have experienced here at the United States of America has actually been the exception rather than the rule historically. What we need to look at is, is our circumstances 
and not fear and worry that the end is near. We need to look and see what's happening and understand that there is a gigantic opportunity for us to go out into the world and storm the gates of hell and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot allow our fears to take our eyes off the goal. The worldwide proclamation of the gospel, that every creature hears the gospel. That's what, that's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to follow him in the dark. When things are hard, we must be watchful of those people who would lead us astray, for sure. And we need not be fearful that the world is falling apart. We need to realize that there's a greater opportunity to share the gospel than there ever has been. And the mission that we're called to is that. That's the goal of our lives. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your advocation is. I don't care what your hobbies are. The goal of your life is to share the gospel. No matter what comes our way, no matter how hard things get, no matter what we see on the horizon, we're to focus and keep ourselves busy sharing the only hope the world is ever going to know, and that is that Jesus Christ paid it all for them. The truth that God created the heavens and the earth in all of us, and he created us for a relationship with him. But our sin separates us from him. And because of our sin, the judgment of God rests upon us. But our sin cannot be overcome by our actions and our, and our best efforts or our law-keeping, which means we're hopeless. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus Christ came into the world, lived the life that you couldn't live to earn perfection that, you, that doesn't belong to you, kept a law that you can't keep, and then died on the cross to pay a penalty you have no ability to pay on your own. And on the cross, he took away all of your sins and washed you clean. And by faith in him, his righteous perfection is then given to you so that you by faith can have life. Everyone who believes has life, and that life begins the moment you believe, and it lasts forever. That is the gospel hope that we have. That is the gospel hope that will change people's lives. That is the gospel hope that will end the violence on the streets. That is the gospel hope that will end the stupidity that we call politics in America. The only hope that we have and the only hope that we're looking forward to ultimately is the gospel of Jesus Christ and God finishing what he started. Now, hear me. People are going to ask me all the time, do we think we live in the end of times? I think we're closer than anybody else has been. That's my answer. Right? I think Christ can come at any moment. He can come right now or a thousand years from now. I think that, you know what, there are a lot of crazy things happening, and I would like to think that it can't get worse, but it just might. What I do know is that there is a God, and I'm not Him. He is sovereign, and I am not. And my hope is only to trust in Him and Him alone and do the things that He's called me to do. And church, I'm asking you to do the same thing. That when you see the darkness rising, instead of letting your heart despairing, that you turn your hope towards Christ in worship, understanding you have an opportunity to affect the world in a greater way than any generation before us. We have more ways to communicate with people and more ways to share with people the gospel than anybody else before us. You have more influence with more people than anybody else before you. You don't believe me? Look how many people are on your Facebook friends list. Right? A knucklehead like me has collected a thousand people that are friends. I have no idea I knew a thousand people in my life. The fact of the matter is, is all of us right now here in this moment have an opportunity to change the world. Now go and vote the way you need to vote. 
this November, that's going to have consequences. I have my feelings about that, but that's irrelevant. But the real hope that we have is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Only He is going to bring unity to our country. Only He is going to stave off His judgment. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 